You've probably heard uh, at some point uh, around somewhere in the south, like where we are, that something may be good for what ails you, right? You, you come down and, and you're, maybe you're having a bad day and, and your mama might say that that peach cobbler and ice cream is good for what ails you, right? That'll fix your day right up. Uh, maybe cinnamon rolls will fix your day right up, Tim. My wife makes some cinnamon rolls. I'm not bragging, but they have like a coffee icing thing. And I, Tim, is it good for what ails you? That's right. Um, Man, things are good for what else? When we talk, we have that kind of statement. We're talking about maybe food or maybe something to drink or maybe some kind of medicine. We can maybe say it in a way that's joking or maybe in a way that's really uh, serious. Some people, that they hear something like that, they're good for what else? You know, I mean, whatever you got going on, this will help you out. And maybe you go to places like cures and supplements or certain exercises or certain tonics or whatever it is. Snake oils, maybe, that, that may, which are not the same as essential oils. We won't get into all that. Snake oils, which may you know, or may not work. Um, and sometimes, though, the more adamant someone is that a cure is going to do something, the more you're like, all right, well, what are you selling exactly? The question for us is this. What ails us as a church? And what is that thing that is good for what ails us? I just want to tell you something today, unless you've been um, less than present for a while, there are things that ail us as a church. Every church has things that ail them. Every church has things that are, where they're not running 100% in line with God's Word, and we have our own things. I've been asked by the deacons to preach through uh, a set of ideas called the Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. And though they were put together originally in a book, they were every single one of them found in God's Word. I want to encourage you right now that if you want to grab one of these on the way out, we have plenty of them. They're free. If you want them, you can pay a little bit of money to offset the cost, or you can take one for free. Please, read it. Consider what it has to say. This tells us what it means to be a biblical church in this day. This isn't about how to do things that are cool or hip or going to draw people in. I mean, it is how to be a healthy biblical church. And that is what our goal should be. The conviction of this idea of nine marks of a healthy church is that, and here's the thing, it's not the nine marks of a healthy church. It's not nine things that a healthy church does. But that right now the author believes that there are nine things that churches in America in general are missing. That we have lost along the way. That used to be part of being a solid biblical church. For us, being as part of a solid Baptist church. And somewhere along the way, for some reason we lost it, but it became unimportant. But there's a conviction that there are certain things that make a church a church. God has this definite plan laid out in his word for how his people who have been called out of the world are supposed to get together and be. But for a lot of us, we struggle with defining what a church should actually be, right? If, if someone right now, um, you know, gun to your head says, hey, what is a a biblically sound definition of a church. Could you come up with something? Tell me what a church is, does, is supposed to be. Not what you've seen done, but what the Bible says a church is supposed to be. God has revealed in his word what a church is and how it's supposed to exist and do and be. The church is God's people. God's people. It is full of people who are regenerate by the Holy Spirit, hopefully. 
That's why we became Baptists, because a long time ago, they said that if you were born into a certain country, you had to be a part of, you, you got baptized as an infant into this certain church, this, the official church of this country, and people said, ah, that's not how it works. Only believers are baptized, and only those who are baptized become members. A church is God's people, called by his word and assembled to represent him in the world. But a lot of churches today want to move beyond that. We, we want to go to a place that's, that's about success, right? We want relevance. But for a lot of us, we want those two things, success and relevance, without health. Or at least we don't want to have health at the expense of success. But hear me, church. No matter what it is and how noble you may feel it is, if your church is not built the way that God intends for it to be built according to his word, it will fail. It may be like a flash in a pan. It may be a slow death that takes years and years and years, but it will fail, and it will not do a thing for God's glory in this world. And the thought of that should frighten you. To waste every Sunday morning, every Wednesday night, it should frighten you. Church, we are a Baptist church. And maybe for you, you hear that and you're like, yeah, that's fine. You know, you're Baptist. I get that. I like how you do worship. So I'm just here. I just want to be biblical, right? Maybe you've heard that and you've said that. But first of all, if you're here, I hope that you think a Baptist church is a biblical church because if you don't think we're a biblical church, then why are you here? Here's the thing. We should want to be Baptist. And some of the things we're going to talk about has to do with what it means to be Baptist, reclaiming that historical Baptist heritage, not just being whatever, but to be historically Baptist, which I would argue is, is as in line with the New Testament church. And I hope that as we go through this series, every time I preach from here until we get another pastor, I hope that you will see that that's what a New Testament church looks like. We're going to read this morning and talk about the first mark of a healthy church, which is found in 2 Timothy 4. Verses 1 through 5, and then we're going to come back around to chapter 3 and kind of walk through it, okay? We, I can already tell you about the clock. We're not going to get out at 12, and I'm sorry. This is the most important thing you're doing all week, I promise you. The assembly of God's people together. This is the most important thing you're going to do. You'll make it. You won't starve. I promise. Chapter 4, verse 1. I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead, and because of his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Rebuke, correct, encourage with great patience and teaching. For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. They'll turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. But as for you, exercise self-control in everything. Endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider your word this morning, our prayer is that you would help us to come to a place where we love your word and we love your word preached. Lord, help us understand that this is your plan for your people. This is your plan for the health of your church, the preaching and proclamation of your word. Help us understand that this word is not just words written on a page, it's not something that we would worship beside you, but it's you. The same way a person 
with a loved one far off in another country, would cherish a letter, cherish an email, cherish a phone call from that person. May we cherish your word that you have given to us to reveal you yourself to us, Lord. Convict us where we need conviction. Encourage us where we need encouragement. And Lord, may you help me to preach your word rightly with no mixture of error, with none of my own opinion in here, Lord. May I preach as one who will never preach again as a dying man to dying men. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Our main idea in this text is this. You'll see it here in just a moment. God's plan for the health of his church is the preaching of the word. This is the first key. This is the first step. This is it. There are all kinds of things that flow out of the preaching of the word, but this is his plan for the health of his church. We're going to walk through this text and see why that is. And maybe we should really say God's plan for the health of his church is the right, the correct preaching of the word. I would say the expository preaching of the word, and I'll explain that in just a minute. But it's his plan for the health of his church is the preaching of his word. So how do we get to this point in chapter 4? We're going to look. We're going to go back to chapter 3 and just walk through some things. Hang tight with me. I'm going to do some reading, okay? Verses 1 through 9. But know this. Hard times will come in the last days. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to the form of godliness but denying its power. Avoid these people. That's a big list, right? That's a huge list. See, Paul is telling Timothy, who is his protege, his mentoree, Paul has been teaching him how to be a minister of the gospel. And he says, listen, understand this. And and, and Timothy's in Ephesus uh, trying to help this church figure out how to be a church. And Paul says, understand something, young man. Hard times are coming in the last days. Now, he's not looking to the year 2019 to talk about the last days. The last days are from the time that Christ has come and then ascended back again till now, because God promises in the last days, I'm going to pour out my spirit on my people. The last days have been from that first century A.D. until now. So for us, when we see last days, that, that should help us understand, any time after Christ. So in these last days, hard times have, are coming, and they have come, and they will come. But why? To sum it up, people are going to be steeped in sin. We don't have time to go through all these and talk about what each of them means individually, but look at it and you can see and tell uh, that they're loving things other than God. They're not truthful. They don't have self-control. All of these things, all these sins, they are steeped in sin. And what's even worse than the fact that they're steeped in sin is what they say about themselves and how they put on a show. Because he says, holding to the form of godliness, but denying its power. There are people in this world and there are Christians in this world who hold to a form of godliness, who get up on Sunday morning, put on their best. I mean, they, they put on a three-piece suit, like with a vest. People don't even wear the vest anymore, right? But they have this form of what we think is godliness. And they come to church and they do all of these things that we think that they should do. They talk like a Christian. They cook a mean casserole for a potluck, right? 
They teach Sunday school. Maybe even they pray out loud in the service. But their lives never actually change. They never stop grasping and holding on to the sin that they love in private and lay it down and instead turn to Christ. They never quit gossiping. They never quit thinking that they're better than other people. They never even try to put their lust and their anger and their pride to death. And what that means is this. There's no transforming power of the Holy Spirit within them. That's what it means, right? Holding to a form of godliness, but denying its power. There's a power that comes with godliness. And it's a power to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. And for so many people in the American church today, this is us. We have a form of godliness. We can talk the right talk. We use the words. We do the things. But we're not putting our sin to death through the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, and here's the last three words, which are the meanest words in the whole New Testament. I'm kidding, but we act like today that there's, there's an 11th commandment, and it's the 11th commandment is be nice, and all the other 10 don't matter. And this one goes against the 11th commandment, so somebody needs to tell Paul. He says, avoid these people. Now hold on, though, because if they're holding to the form of godliness, that means they're probably coming to church, right? And they're probably like members, and they've probably done all this. But he says that if they're having the form of godliness, but they deny its power... First of all, you can know it because you can avoid it, right? If you can avoid them, you should be able to tell. So if you see that someone claims to have godliness, but they're denying its power, he says avoid them. Have nothing to do with them. We don't know what to do with that, do we? We don't know what to do with that because that seems so very not nice. That's not what God's word says. Avoid these people, have nothing to do with them. This is the same ideas that are behind 1 Corinthians 5. About whenever we do put someone out of the church because they are doing this, they hold a form of godliness, but they deny its power. He says, have nothing to do with the Christian who does that. You can hang out with people who aren't Christians and do these things all day long because you know that's what they're supposed to be doing. That's, it makes sense, right? Non-Christians aren't going to act like Christians. But Christians shouldn't act like non-Christians. So he says, don't even, spend, don't even have a meal with those people in 1 Corinthians 5. Here he says, avoid them. The point is this, there are those among those folks who are deceivers. The whole point of this really is this, that the world and, its, and the church are full of untruth. And that's an unfortunate thing. The world is full of untruth because there's all these people who, who do all these things, right? Who do all these sins. And then even the church has those people in them. And he goes on to say, though, for among them are those who worm their way into households and deceive gullible women, overwhelmed by sin and led astray by a variety of passions, always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. The idea here is this. There was false teachers who would see that there were these women who felt guilty about whatever it is their past sin was. We don't know what it was, but they were overwhelmed by the guilt that was there. And so these false teachers would worm their way in and, and, and lead them into false teaching, false beliefs, whatever it was. Maybe for them it was saying, hey, you need to be like legalistic. They wouldn't call it that, but you say, hey, you got to do this, 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 or you can't be saved or God won't save you, and it's putting works in front of that. Or maybe it's the other side, and it says, listen, I know you're a sinner, you've struggled with this so much, but don't worry about it. That's this idea of you can do whatever you want. Don't know what it is, but it says they're always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Listen, church, there's truth to be learned. Absolute truth exists, and if it didn't, we'd be in trouble. But truth exists and it can be learned. 
But if you're always learning and you're always coming up with some new doctrine, and when I say a new doctrine, I don't mean something that you, like, you never really heard before because maybe you're the tradition you grew up in didn't believe in that doctrine. But I mean a new doctrine that like someone came up with, and it's like brand new, no, people have got Christianity wrong for 2,000 years, that kind of new doctrine, understand something. If it's new, it's not from God. If it's a new doctrine, a new truth, God has given us his truth. He's revealed it all here. Now, maybe you don't know it yet. Maybe you don't understand it. But these people are always learning, but they're never able to come to that knowledge. They say, yes, now I know what the truth is. But for some people, there's always new doctrines, always new circles to draw around us whenever we pray, which really just comes from rabbis and not from Christianity. Always writing in journals and, and, and doing something where I hear God writing, you know, telling me what to write down in a journal to give to people that way. Uh, because, I, because I believe in the introduction, I say that God's word isn't enough. False teaching is what that is. The world and the church are full of untruth. That's the first point. First, or 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 9. We're going on to verse 10. We see that the scriptures are God's word. Okay? So hang with me here. The scriptures are God's word. But if you have followed my teaching, my conduct, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, and my endurance, along with the persecutions and suffering that came to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and yet the Lord rescued me from them all. In fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Evil people and impostors will become worse, deceiving and being deceived. Timothy is unlike these people here. He says, you followed what I'm doing. These false teachers don't face persecution because they don't have the gospel. See, the world hates the gospel, but the world will take something that isn't the gospel and say, it looks like the gospel, you're going to call it the gospel. I'm fine with that. The world has much less problem with things like the prosperity gospel that says that if you will just, um, as long as you you do the right things, then God's going to bless you. As long as you claim the name of Christ, you'll have everything you ever wanted. Foolishness and lies is what that is. Christ said, if anyone would come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. He says, to follow me means to take up an instrument of torture. All who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All, everyone. He says, Timothy, you're facing that because you're holding to the word. You're holding to my example. But there's evil people and impostors will come and they'll get worse and worse and worse deceiving people. But verse 14, but as for you, you continue in what you've learned and what you firmly believed. You know those who taught you. And you know that from the infancy you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. I've taken a tangent because I'm a family pastor. From infancy, Timothy had been taught the sacred scriptures. And now he could look back on those and cling to them and trust in them and say, this is who God is. What a blessing that he had that, that from infancy he was given that blessing. And if you know anything about Timothy, you know that his daddy wasn't doing it, right? Daddy should have been doing it because God has in, intends that the men would be the leaders of their families in that way. But daddy wasn't doing it because daddy didn't even believe in Christ. So mom and grandma had to do it. Whatever it takes, teach your young people God's word so they have a foundation to stand on. That's my tangent as a family pastor. I'm going to come get back to my message now. <laughs> you know that word. 
And it's that word that is able to give you salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That word tells you who Christ is. And through believing it, you were saved. Now hear this. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Church, I don't know if you know this, but the Southern Baptist Convention almost lost its way. Do y'all know that? We had a time where, we, where we, were, we were pushing up against theological liberalism and saying that the Bible is not God's inerrant word. I only barely knew about this, and I went to school. And like later, I'm taking Baptist history, and I'm like, whoa, what? We had a time where we were flirting with these theologically liberal ideas where we didn't believe that the Bible is truly, fully God's word. In the 80s, do you understand that? In the 80s, we almost lost it. This is so much nearer to us than we could ever comprehend. And then a thing called the conservative resurgence happened, and we turned back to the Bible and said, this is God's word, and praise God for it. But I just want you, like, if you don't know about that, go and research it and understand that we're only ever one generation away from compromise that leads to the death of our denomination. So please understand that. We fought this fight, and it's a fight for inspiration. It's this fight, and inspired means like in the spirit within, right? The spirit is one who's inspiring the word. The Holy Spirit creates it. It's from God. God breathed. And we fought this fight in the 80s, and the conservative resurgence happened, and, and we won the fight, praise God. And we're only ever one generation away. But there's a fight that we're still fighting today, and it's the, the fight for sufficiency. And that's a fight that is forever, because it's a fight that says, is God's word really enough? Inspiration is the fact that we say, okay, well, it's God's word, and, and we can believe that it's God's word all day long. But is it actually sufficient to do what it says it's going to do in your life? Is it actually sufficient to tell us all that we need, as Second Peter chapter 1 says, for life and godliness? He says he has given us all things necessary for life and for godliness. That's what this fight is at the end of the day. This fight for the sufficiency of Scripture is sufficient for us for how to live. Now, Scripture does four things here, and I'm going to just mention them real quick and we're going to keep moving. It teaches, it rebukes, it corrects, and it trains in righteousness. Scripture is there for those reasons. Are we glad that Scripture can be read whenever we are um, having a hard time and it comforts us? Yes and amen. Praise God that it does that. But if that's all that Scripture ever is, for you, you need to step back and, and ask yourself, do I actually see Scripture how God intended me to see Scripture? It's to teach us what the truth actually is. It's for rebuking whenever the truth is pushed up against and denied. It's for correcting. That's after rebuke happens, right? If you come to me and say, Ethan, you taught this wrong on Sunday, you correct me or you rebuke me, then you have to correct me, right? You can't just say, hey, this is wrong. I don't like it. That's it, right? It's, hey, this is wrong, I don't like it. And here's what God's word actually says. And it's also for training in righteousness, teaching us how to live lives that glorify God. So I want you to understand something as we go through all this. Paul's whole point is that times are bad. If you go back and, I mean, just run your eyes over the first five verses of chapter three. All of the terrible things that people are and do. And Paul says, times are bad. Are times bad now? Yeah. Are terrorist attacks happening? Terrorist attacks happen now, right? People murder people. No one cares about the value of human life. Like, like t- times are bad, right? 
We can name thing after thing and thing and say times are bad. And Paul says times are bad, but Timothy, you know the scripture. You know it's breathed out by God. You know it's useful for all things that you need. And so he doesn't say, so therefore, Timothy, go see a secular psychologist so you can deal with all the trouble, right? His advice isn't, so Timothy, if you want your church to grow, uh, make a sweet program that's going to draw people in, right? What does he say? Before he even says it, let me tell you this, verse 1. He says, I solemnly charge you. He's not just going to say preach the word. I'm going to give my hand away. He's going to say preach the word. You can see it right there in the text, though. Hopefully you do. But he says, he doesn't just say preach the word. He says, I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus. This is before the face of God. He says, listen, I want to make sure that you know that, that God is looking at us as I charge you this. He knows that I'm telling you to do this. And here's what he says about him. He is the God who's going to judge the living and the dead. And because of his appearing in his kingdom, Church, everything that we should do should be in light of the fact that one day we're going to be standing face-to-face to God. Now, if we're in Christ, we don't have to stand there in this quaking in our boots fear of am I going to hell or not. On the contrary, we can stand there in confidence. But the way that we should stand there, the way we should consider now is that one day I'm going to stand there before the God who judges the living and who judges the dead. I know the one day he's going to appear and his kingdom's going to come. And the question is this, what place will I have in his kingdom? What reward will I have for faithfulness to him and to his word? And that's another sermon for another day if you've never heard that. And it's a hard thing to, to, to grasp. For me, it was when I first heard about it. But, you know, there are rewards for the things we do after we become a Christian or the lack of reward. It's another sermon for another day, but understand this. That one day we'll face God, we'll see God face to face. And we'll have to answer for how we did or didn't live the Christian life. How we did or didn't trust in his word. So he says this. In front of God, who's going to come one day and you're going to stand face to face with, and in light of all of the sin and terribleness in the world, here's what you do, Timothy. Preach the word. Full stop, right? The next sentence, the next part of the sentence is just how to do that. Don't implement a strategy, don't go see a psychologist. Don't put smoke and lights in your sanctuary. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't deal with it this way. Don't deal with it that way. Do one thing and one thing only, and that is to preach the word of God. This word is caruso, and it means to proclaim like you're a herald. So here's the point then. So this is just about preaching, but I thought you said this was expository preaching. That's what this is about. We're about to explain that here in just a second. Because see, there is good preaching and there's bad preaching, okay? You know it when you hear it. I hope I'm falling into a certain category today. There's good preaching, and there's bad preaching, and you know it when you hear it. But understand this, there's, there's, like, there's like boring preaching, and then there's unbiblical preaching. And those are the categories, actually, that we, we should be thinking about. Does this follow God's word, or does it not? Because, see, whenever we understand that preaching is more than just saying, getting up here and saying things and trying to get some kind of emotional response from you and trying to get more people in the pews or to sign a card then that's going to change how we preach, right? If, that, if that's what you're trying to do. But if you understand that preaching is more than just getting up here and saying words to get a response, but it's actually proclaiming like a herald for a king, then preaching is something totally different. Because if I'm some little herald for a king, right, and I, and I show up somewhere and they're like, you know, and they like do the little trumpets, and I'm like, hear ye, hear ye, and then like I take liberties with the message that the king has sent, what kind of shape am I in? 
whenever the king finds out that I'm taking liberties with, with the message he gave me, with that text. And I said, well, I know he said this, but really, do we even know that the king wrote this? Right, like, I mean, did he really mean this, like, when he said that? Like, what would the king do to me if he found out that I was doing that? Yeah, I'd be done for, right? That's, the, that's what this is. Preaching the word is not just getting up and talking. It's not just saying, well, here's my opinion and be nice to each other. It's saying, this is the word of God, thus says the Lord. And understand, church, there's a lot that happens today that is called preaching that is not preaching. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run over these real quick, and then tonight, whenever we get together again, we're going to talk about this more in depth and understanding what is true expository preaching versus other preaching, okay? This idea of expository preaching, well, let me talk about bad preaching first, and we'll talk about good preaching. There, there's a preaching that isn't actually preaching. It's not proclaiming, this is the Word of God. It's one that's impressionistic. It's where you sit down and, well... You know, I was having a bad day, and this just made an impression on me, and I, and I hope it makes an impression on you, I guess, and, and it made me happy. I hope it makes you happy. Along with that impression, it's that preaching is this kind of inspired preaching, right? Like, oh, this motivated me the other day, and, and my private devotions, and so it must be what God wants me to preach. There's another one called uh, inebriated preaching, and um, if you don't know what that word means, it means drunk preaching, right? Um, which hopefully doesn't happen here, um, ever. But drunk preaching is this. How does a drunk use a lamp pole? Do they use it for illumination? No, they use it for support, right? They're, they're like posted up against it, like trying to like keep from falling down, right? There's an inebriated preaching where it says, I have a message that I need to get across, and I'll take any text that gets me there, right? We, 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 need to, we have a, a, man, we're hurting for money, I gotta go find me a text that's gonna make everybody feel bad and get them into whatever whatever text I can use to get them to, to cough up some extra money. Inebriated preaching is where I'm using the text for support instead of illumination. I go to it and say, I'm gonna impose my will on you, text, and not the other way around. There's an intellectual or a running commentary preaching, which is getting up and saying, well, here, here's what it says, and here's what it's about, and here's an interesting insight, and here's this Greek word. I, I struggle to not do this. I hope that's not what this is today. And that's the goal is to not be like this. But it's just lecturing you. And there's this idea of spiritualizing everything, ripping it from its historical context. There's all this preaching that says that somehow we're short-circuiting part of this process to make a sermon. Like I said, that's what we're talking about tonight. And I hope you'll come back and see more in depth what that looks like. But here's the deal. We should aim that everything that comes from this pulpit here, and honestly from every podium or chair or wherever the teaching happens in this church, that it should be what we call expositional. At the heart of the word expositional is just the word to expose. We're trying to expose the clear meaning of the text. See, what I'm trying to do here is to not come up here and, and give you one verse out, ripped out of context and what I think or what's going to make you feel bad or feel good or whatever. But instead, my job is to come here and to expose to you the meaning of this text. Where you look at it and you say, man, you know what? I'm not sure what he's getting at. And for me to hopefully take it and just kind of peel back whatever it is and say, ah, that's what the text means. Sometimes that's easy because it's pretty clear and straightforward. Sometimes it isn't. Paul tells them, though, to preach the word. 
actually preach it, actually proclaim it as a herald. You don't take liberties with it, but you proclaim what the king has said is to be proclaimed. Now, here's why, though. We can't play fast and loose with the scripture these days. We never could. But we definitely can't these days, because here's what he says, and it's come true now. For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, they will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. They'll turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. Church, if that's ever been true, it's today. If that has ever been true, it's today. And I'm sorry if you like them, but the vast majority of these preachers who are on television, not every single one of them, but the vast majority of them have no business being there. They have no business occupying a pulpit because they preach a false gospel. They preach a gospel that says that if you do X, Y, and Z, God is obligated to bless you and give you what you want. They preach a gospel that says you don't have to take up your cross and follow him, and life's all good and happy and sunshine and rainbows. They preach the gospel that says you don't have to sacrifice anything to follow the one who sacrificed everything for you. This time is now. We have to be demanding that every single time we hear the text preached, the one preaching it is exposing it to our minds and to our hearts. Because if it's not, then do we actually believe it even has power? If we've got to gussy it up and make it pretty and do these special things with it, do we actually believe that it has power? Paul believes that what is good for what ails the church in Ephesus and the church eternally because that's what he says in the future. He talks about the future time that's coming. What, what, what is good for what else that church? It's the preaching of the word. The word truly preached, not man's wisdom, not, not stories, story after story after story, not pontificating and talking about some concept and using, if I use big enough words and flowery, flowery enough language, you'll think I'm smart. It's not that. It's preaching the word and not putting up with it when it's not preached. This is what else our church is today. That many people live holding to a form of godliness but denying its power. Many people live not knowing enough of Scripture to be able to withstand false teaching. Paul says, I believe it's Paul, and in one of his books, he talks about the fact that he says, you guys should be eating meat by now, but I still have to give you the milk of the word. These things should not be. Imagine a family gathering around. We're landing this plane, okay? Just so you know. Imagine there's a family who's gathered around to hear a letter from a father who's gone off to war. How pumped would you be, first of all, right? Like, you're a kid. Your dad's off at war. You're just glad to get a letter to know that he's alive, right? You're glad to hear something from him because he is so incredibly far away, thousands of miles away. And imagine that your mother goes to read the letter or some other family member goes to read the letter and you're, like, you're ready, and you're like, okay, we're ready to read it, and they're pulling down, and they're like, let's go, let's do this, and you're pumped to hear what your dad has to say. And instead of reading the letter, they say, you know, I've been thinking a lot about war lately, and war's a, it's a hard thing. 
right? Or, you know, getting this letter actually reminds me, like you're like ready and pumped for the letter, like getting this letter actually reminds me of this one time they go off and tell stories for 40 minutes. If you're waiting to hear a word from your dad, what are you going to be sitting there doing the entire time? What are you doing? I want to hear from my father. I want to hear what he has to say to me. Tell me, just tell me what he said. Unfortunately, a lot of people don't realize that we have the letter. We have the communication. Our father, who we're waiting to return one day, has given us all that we need to know about him and about how to live in this world until then. And so many get up to talk about whatever. I'm thinking a lot about this lately. I'm thinking a lot about that lately. Got some good stories for you. We just want to know what our father says. That's it. And if you don't, you should. That is God's plan for the health of his church. We will never get to understanding what biblical church membership would, should be or what, what it should mean to have a right view of conversion or discipline or church leadership or whatever if we don't believe that the word is God's word and that it should be preached plainly to God's people every week. So how do we do this? Last thing, and then we'll go. How do we do this today? How do we live as though God's word is actually sufficient for us? How do we live as though we believe that it's good for what ails us? The number one thing is this. Love it. Love, love the word. If you don't love it, ask God to help you love it. And if you don't come to love it after you ask him to help you love it, say, God, why don't I love it? Help him to reveal to you whatever it is. Maybe you're unconverted. And maybe that's, what, like, that's what's going to help you figure it out. We're so afraid to tell anybody they're unconverted these days, though. But maybe you are. Maybe that's what it is. You don't love the word. But man, if you love your father, are you going to love what he has written to you? Yes. Love the word. Know the word so that you know what is a myth and false teaching and what isn't. Okay? Or you'll lose the gospel. These people, they weren't just bringing in little bitty things where they said, you know, the myth they brought in was that God intends for the carpet to be green or whatever, right? These are things that pervert and distort the gospel of Christ. These are things that if you believe them, you will not make it to heaven. If they didn't know the word, if Timothy hadn't been taught the word from infancy, he would have been in trouble. Know the words that you can know what's a myth and what isn't. Demand expository preaching. We're searching for a pastor in case you didn't know. <laughs> um, in case you're like just way behind. We're searching for a pastor. And as we search for a pastor, the number one thing that should be on your mind is this. What kind of preacher of the word is he? Because there is, when the apostles had this huge crisis, right? Like a very, a very important social crisis happening in their church. Instead of handling it themselves, they appointed deacons. Why? Because they had a job. What was their job? The ministry of the word and prayer. Which goes together very nicely with the ministry of the word. And that God would apply it. Church, I don't care how nice he is. I don't care how handsome he is. I don't care if he can sing or dance or whatever. I don't care how good he is at visiting and sitting down and having coffee with you. If he can't preach the word, he's not fit to be a pastor of this church. That's just all there is to it. Because this is God's plan for the good of his church and the health of his church. That we'd preach the word and preach it expositorily, exposing to his people what it means. 
You also should demand that your church operates in accordance with the word. That is uncomfortable. That is uncomfortable to demand that your church operate in accordance with the word. But if you find things in how we operate and how we do, I know it's a little bit easier for me because in our church, a family pastor like me, like the deacons are in charge, so I don't get as much of it, right? So this is kind of more on Chet and, you know, you're welcome. Go to your church leadership and you demand to them, make us in accordance with the word. We're not matching up with the word here. Here's what we need to do. And understand, there are times where maybe we're not understanding things. There's times where it's second, third level. And there, is, there is some kind of compromise that is to be had, okay? There's compromise on things that are not primary. Just understand that there are things where we have to say, man, our church is, is, is doing this or is not doing this, and, and we're missing the word of God. Conform your life to the word, not to myths. Conform your life to the word, not to myths. Not the myths of you can live however you want. Who cares, right? Not the myths of um, sin as much as you like, and God will forgive you. Don't worry, buddy. You just go on and sin so that grace may abound. Paul's response to that in Romans 6 is, may it never be. At the same time, on the other side, not the myths of saying, if you slip up once, you gotta, you got to get resaved all over again. Right? There's all kinds of myths out there. If you learn God's word, you can, you, you can get away from that. Conform your life to the word, though, instead. Or the final judgment, you may find that you don't know the gospel at all. Go to the scriptures for answers to your problems. That's the next thing. And not to all the other things that would help us find answers in the world. Don't go to the world for answers. Great Scott. You've left the world. That's not your home anymore. Those aren't your people anymore. But so often we go to the world and we say, listen, I, I heard there's this new pop psychology concept uh, that, that will really help me just work through these things. And God, through his word, it says, I've given you everything that you need for life and godliness. Understand, I'm going to preface it with this. There are times when someone does need a pill when someone does need medication, when someone does need to talk through something. Okay, so we don't deny that that's true, but also understand this. Could it be that what you don't need is therapy? What you don't need is a pill, but what you need to do is look at God's word, see how it doesn't line up with your life and how you don't line up with it, and then to repent? Is that just maybe a possibility? For so many of us, we're like, man, my life's just terrible. I need to go see a therapist. And like, that's like the first place we go instead of the last. Great Scott, he tells us that he's given us all that we need for life and godliness. Proclaim the true word. Proclaim it. When you talk to people, don't talk about the weather. Don't mill around. Don't, don't be all mealy-mouthed whenever, you, whenever you're talking about Proclaim the word of God to them. Don't, you, know, you don't have to get up on a box and start preaching. When you're talking to someone, say, this is what God's word says. May your counsel be given that. Paul says that we, as Christians, we're competent to counsel one another. We are competent and able to, to, to give each other the words of God that we need to get through this life. Nutheteo, right? To exhort one another. We're competent to do that, Paul says. So do that. Proclaim the gospel to the lost. Proclaim the gospel to one another. And understand this last thing. Even when there's preaching, even in preaching, the gospel is at stake. Bad preaching, and here's the thing, though. Bad preaching can somehow, God is gracious to, write, to, to hit a, a straight lick with a crooked stick. He can do it. He has done it. He'll continue to do it. Bad preaching can somehow get the gospel right, but good preaching will never get it 
wrong. Church, maybe a church that aims for good, biblical, expository preaching. Not because that's just where we decide to be on a whim, but because that's what God gives us to be. Let's pray. Lord, we know at the, at the root and the heart of all of this is the fact that um, the question of whether or not your word is sufficient, Lord, may your word actually be sufficient to us. We know that it is sufficient, may we treat it as such, though. Father, may you give us the confidence in your word. And God, where, where we don't line up, Lord, where we have the appearance of godliness, but we deny its power to change us and to cause us to say no to sin and yes to righteousness, God, convict us. Lord, convict us. Help us, bring us to repentance where we don't trust your word. We don't believe it. And Father, may we be a church that above all else loves you and in loving you, we do it by loving your word, honoring your word, exalting your word and being conformed to your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.